Welcome to the podcast on Becoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. Just a reminder that On Becoming is on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. I'd love to hear from you if you have any questions or comments or suggestions for the podcast. Please send those to OnBecomingPodcast at gmail.com. Given our continually growing listenership, I think it's safe to say that the content of the podcast is connecting with many people. But we're always interested in knowing about which aspects of the podcast particularly resonate with you. If you're enjoying the podcast, I invite you to follow it. It's a small thing, but it makes a difference. Or consider supporting it in an ongoing way at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast. If you feel like you'd like to support us with a one-time gift, you can do so at paypal.com or use the PayPal app. In either case, our username is our email address, onbecomingpodcasts at gmail.com. Many thanks to those of you who've indicated your appreciation by way of support, as well as those of you who've reached out and let me know that you're enjoying the podcast. Let's start this podcast with a quote. As I read it, see if you can guess who might be its author. Slavery as it existed in the South was not an adversarial relationship with pervasive racial animosity. Because of its dominantly patriarchal character, it was a relationship based upon mutual affection and confidence. There has never been a multiracial society which has existed with such mutual intimacy and harmony in the history of the world. The credit for this must go to the predominance of Christianity. The gospel enabled men who were distinct in nearly every way to live and work together, to be friends and often intimates. Slave life was a life of plenty, of simple pleasures, of food, clothes, and good medical care. Are you thinking Jefferson Davis, or perhaps a particularly well-known enslaver? You can probably figure out that it's a man speaking since it celebrates the patriarchal aspect of slavery, though alas many women who identify as evangelicals are more than comfortable with patriarchy. The authors are Steve Wilkins and Douglas Wilson, who refer to it as a monograph, even though it's only 22 pages in length. But they've managed to fit a lot of misinformation and good old-fashioned hatred into those pages. In their opening paragraph, they state the following. The institution of slavery has so blackened the Southern position that nothing about the South can be viewed as good or right. Slavery is considered to be such a wicked practice that it alone is the sufficient answer to the question of which side was right in that unfortunate war. The fact that the South practiced slavery is enough to cause many moderns to feel that they do not even have to listen to the various biblical and constitutional arguments that swirled around that controversy. Consequently, to have a closed mind on this issue is to be cloaked in virtue. By the way, even though this isn't a quote from Jefferson Davis, Wilson elsewhere claims that whereas most people voted for Bush in Idaho, he'd have preferred to vote for Jefferson Davis. So you get half credit if you guessed Davis. It's not often that those of us who think slavery is a bad thing are told that we are closed-minded. Can't we see that slavery provided a wonderful sense of community for both the slaves and their masters? Actually, I can't. I'm pretty close-minded on this issue. 
Of course, before reaching that conclusion, I was open-minded enough to consider the actual facts, such as beatings, tearing families apart, and the concept of owning another human being. But given those points, and many more, I confess that my mind is made up that slavery is not just somewhat wrong, but fundamentally and unequivocally wrong. It is unfortunate, though, that the Bible never actually condemns slavery. And that omission leads Wilkins and Wilson to conclude that slavery is just fine, except for one little thing. Here's how they explain it. The slave trade was an abomination. The Bible condemns it, and all who believe the Bible are bound to do the same. Owning slaves is not an abomination. The Bible not, does not condemn it, and those who believe the Bible are bound to refrain in the same way. Thus, owning slaves is just fine. The bad part was the slave trade. But even if we were to bracket out the fact that slaves brought to the U.S. weren't exactly happy about that, the process of owning slaves, which is to say owning another person, was highly dependent upon the slave trade. I'm not sure how they think you could have one without the other. Oddly enough, while the Bible should condemn slavery and any mechanism that makes it possible, the authors are wrong in saying that it does condemn the slave trade. I hope this point makes something clear. Just because the Bible doesn't condemn something doesn't mean it shouldn't be condemned. But as we'll see in just a moment, a lack of condemnation for these folks means that slavery is okay. The authors claim that, and now I'm quoting, the New Testament contains many instructions for Christian slave owners and requires a respectful, submissive demeanor for Christian slaves. Thus, they conclude that slavery is affirmed by Scripture. They give the example of a debate between Jerry Falwell Sr. and a, an unnamed liberal Episcopal bishop. According to them, Falwell was arguing that the Bible is against abortion and homosexuality. Before I go any further, let me just mention that the Bible simply says nothing about abortion, either positive or negative, absolutely nothing. But their point is that the bishop then pointed out that the Bible has no prohibitions regarding slavery, which left Falwell to, as they, the writers put it, hem and haw. They acknowledged that the bishop was right, and they implied that Falwell should simply have admitted that this was true. Wilkins and Wilson would have preferred that Falwell go all the way and say, hey, Slavery is okay. Biblical texts can be read in isolation from one another. It's truly a shame that the Apostle Paul didn't condemn slavery in his letters, though he also didn't condone it either. However, it's really hard to see how slavery fits with Jesus' notion of the kingdom of God on earth in which everyone is invited to the table. It doesn't jive with Jesus' own breaking of barriers between those on the inside and those on the outside. Or consider this. William Wilberforce didn't just decide that slavery was wrong on his own. He underwent an intense conversion to Christianity that then shaped the rest of his life, particularly his willingness to work with the Quakers to abolish the slave trade. I guess Wilkins and Wilson would agree with Wilberforce about the cruelty of the slave trade, but they would part company with him on slave ownership. The view that slavery is just fine is only one of the many things that Christian nationalists often believe, though the reality is that Christian nationalists are often somewhat cagey about their real beliefs, since they realize that their views are not shared by most people. 
Wilkins and Wilson believe that the Bible sets up a kind of hierarchy in which slavery is condoned. However, the authors provide other reasoning, that's in air quotes for such a view. They point out that, now I'm quoting, the vast majority of the slaves had already been enslaved in Africa by other blacks. If you've studied philosophical fallacies, you'll know that this is a version of the Tuquoke fallacy, in which slavery gets justified because it started with Africans enslaving other Africans. Tuquoke is Latin for you also, as in, how can you criticize me for cheating on a test when you plagiarized your paper? I hope it's clear that both of these are wrong, so there isn't any argument here. But it gets worse since they provide yet another argument for their views. The authors quote a judge, George L. Christian, who proclaims that, and now I'm quoting, the slaves, servants as we called them, were regarded and treated as members of the families to which the severally belonged. And with rare exceptions, they were treated with kindness and consideration, and frequently the relations between the slave and his owner were those of real affection and confidence. The authors go on to say that slave life was, and again now I'm quoting, a life of plenty, of simple pleasures, of food, clothes, and good medical care. How is it possible that the authors can endorse this rosy picture of the happy slaves who have a life of plenty? It makes me think of the Gershwin song, I've Got Plenty of Nothing. Wilson and Wilkins, however, show their hand when they refer to the modern notion of civil rights as propaganda that is based sheerly on what they term indoctrination. You know the old grooming accusation. People who believe in civil rights have been grooming their children to believe that people of every color should be respected and treated equally. In case you're thinking, they can't be that extreme. They are explicit that, and here again I'm quoting, Christians must recognize that they are under the authority of God, and they may not develop their ideas of what is right and fair apart from the word of God. Our humanistic and democratic culture regards slavery in itself as a monstrous evil, and it acts as though this were self-evidently true. The Bible permits Christians to own slaves, provided they are treated well. You are a Christian. Whom do you believe? You know, I keep mentioning hermeneutics on this podcast. The reason is that it's at the very heart of all of the culture war debates. I hope you can see that the view they put forth has deep hermeneutical problems. They're reading the Bible in the most literal and ossified way possible. The Bible doesn't condemn slavery, so it's fine. Of course, as I just mentioned, the Bible has no position on abortion, so you would think that would be fine too. Yet the authors are convinced that the Bible is against abortion, so much so that they say, and here uh, I'm quoting from them, if an abortionist sought membership at either of our churches, he would be refused unless he repented and abandoned his murderous practice. But then, aren't they guilty of reading their own views into the Bible, which is exactly what they said they wouldn't do? Interestingly enough, they make it clear that if it weren't for current laws against slavery, they would be more than happy to accept a godly slave owner as a member of their churches. You may wonder why I've spent a few minutes explaining the views of people who think slavery is a good thing. The reason is that one of the authors, Doug Wilson, has made a name for himself by attempting to, um, how should we put this, take over the town of Moscow, Idaho, 
for, well, some weird version of Christianity. It's very hard to think that Jesus would be cool with this, but Wilson's view of Jesus is not the usual one. Rather than being something like meek and mild, Jesus was a fighter. Wilson had a show on Amazon Prime titled Man Rampant. It's on YouTube now. And its first episode explicitly condemns empathy. Wilson calls empathy a sin. Again, it's hard to know what to say when people make statements that are so dumb. I'm sorry if this sounds harsh, but I'm dumbfounded that someone who claims to have read the Bible and taken it seriously can think being empathetic to other people is sinful. If anything, I would assume the exact opposite. If they can't see that Jesus practices empathy everywhere he goes, then I just don't know what kind of argument would convince them otherwise. Even highly secular psychologists make the point that empathy is a universal human trait that has been extremely important in our evolution as social creatures and is part of how we became beings who talk to one another. From where I stand to say that empathy as a sin is so far away from the spirit of Christianity that I would be hard-pressed to call these people Christians. Let me put this another way. Although I'm using the term Christian nationalism, that's only because the proponents of these views call themselves Christians. I would actually be much more comfortable with a term like anti-Christian nationalism. I'm sure there are beliefs that I and Christian nationalists share, but I worry that what they mean when they affirm some part of Christianity is probably not what I mean. However, I think we part ways hermeneutically since I simply don't see in the Bible what people like Wilkins and Wilson claim they see. If you want a specific example, people like Wilson believe that before the foundation of the world, this is how people like this talk, God decided to choose some people to go to heaven and others to go to hell. When the Bible says God so loved the world, they redefine world to mean elect. In other words, on this view, Jesus didn't actually die to save the world, only just a small portion of it. Do you see why hermeneutics is such a big deal? How you read even that short phrase has enormous implications. By the way, for people who say that they take the Bible literally, it's difficult to believe such a claim when people can't simply accept that the word world is inclusive. Just to be clear, the word in Greek is kosmon, a form of the Greek word that is usually translated as cosmos or universe. How much more inclusive can you get than universe? Back in the COVID era, about 150 Christians in Moscow joined together for a psalm sing in the parking lot of the city hall. You might think, oh, how sweet, Christians getting together to sing psalms. But the whole point of the sing wasn't about music. It was about protesting the law requiring masks. Doug Wilson was one of the organizers of the event. Before the event, Wilson tweeted this little nugget of conspiracy thinking. Too few see the masking orders for what they ultimately are. Our modern and very swollen state wants to get the largest possible number of people used to putting up with the most manifest lies. In an article in Christianity Today, Gillis J. Harp makes the following observation about the movement. Despite all their dismissals of benighted pietism, isn't it ironic that Rushdoony, North, and Wilson all ended up following 20th century evangelicals in disparaging state intervention and embracing libertarianism? Despite the theonomous reverence for the Puritans, 
Libertarian assumptions appear to trump the Puritans' focus on the common good and their conception of the state as a moral agent. As such, their theonomy appears to owe more to Rand Paul than to, say, the Massachusetts Bay Colony's first governor, John Winthrop. In this sense, is it really accurate to affirm, as Gribben does, that the Moscow community has successfully resisted American modernity? Wilson is the pastor of Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. He's also a faculty member at New St. Andrews College, where the president of the college is married to Wilson's daughter. Moscow is not just another small town. It's part of what is called the American Redoubt, which is composed of Idaho, Wyoming, and eastern parts of Washington and Oregon. That term comes from the survivalist, also blogger and novelist, James Wesley Rawls, who thought that this would be a safe area for conservative Christians when, as one reporter put it, the American economy hits the fan. When banks fail, the government declares martial law, the power grid goes down. I'm always mystified by the belief that if everything goes haywire, you'll be safe in some rural place. My own belief is that everything goes haywire. There won't be any place where you'll be just fine. Rawls says, and I'm quoting, I'm often asked why I make such a big deal about choosing conservative Christians, Messianic Jews, or Orthodox Jews for neighbors. The plain truth is that in a societal collapse, there will be a veritable vacuum of law enforcement. In such times, with a few exceptions, it will only be the God-fearing that will continue to be law-abiding. Choose your neighborhood wisely. Note that the basic view here is that only Christians and Orthodox Jews will obey the law if there's no legal enforcement. By the way, Messianic Jews are Jewish people who have embraced Jesus as the Messiah. According to this view, if you're a Muslim, Buddhist, atheist, simply one of the nuns, you can't be tra- trusted to act morally unless there's the threat of law enforcement. Such a view, of course, is utterly insulting to pretty much the rest of the world. It's also untrue. The vast majority of people obey the law because they're convinced that it's a good thing to do. Of course, Moscow, Idaho, seems to have been founded with somewhat of a twist on the Rawlsian narrative. While they believe that American society is doomed and is destined to fall apart, Muscoites believe that once the destruction of the U.S. is accomplished, then their theonomy will become the law. It's just a matter of time. In an interview, Crawford Griffin says the following, The Reconstructionists have great confidence that they are building communities that will survive the crisis in American culture and that will emerge to create entirely organically the new and newly Christian United States. Even though Christianity is declining in the United States, folks like Wilson believe that they could turn Moscow into a distinctly Christian town. They are enormously confident that they will succeed. It's a view that marries survivalism with the determined drive to reconstruct America as a truly godly society. I've mentioned the college, but there is also a classical Christian school and a music conservatory in the town. Wilson and company broadcast their views by way of Canon Press, also located in the town. If you go to their website, you'll see that they have a lot of books dealing with how to make the world a better place. Of course, if you go to their website, the first thing you'll see in big letters are the words, Make America Christian Again. I was more than a little taken aback when I saw that one 
of the books Canon Press publishes is authored by someone with whom I once worked. But this is what I mean when I say that many people have bits and pieces of their Reconstructionist ideas in their theology, even people you might not suspect. Griffin defines this strategy as follows. Overall, they've created an ecosystem that publishes their ideas, that encourages migration in the area, that supports new arrivals with employment opportunities, school, and other educational ventures. And this kind of growth is, of course, positioning the community as the fulfillment of its own prophetic expectations. Success breeds success. In a nutshell, that's the vision of Moscow, to become a place that has its own ecosystem far away from the evils of the big city. You might be wondering, is this for real? Am I making this up? No. Which is why I'm devoting an episode to these views and the authors of these views. I have already pointed out that Christian nationalism has roots in some pretty scary stuff. But what's even more frightening is that such views are increasing in popularity. According to a recent survey conducted by the Public Religion Research Institute and the Brookings Institution, more than half of the Republicans surveyed said that they believe that the United States should become a strictly Christian nation. 21% identified as believing the views of Christian nationalists. 33% said that they sympathized with such views. Marjorie Taylor Greene, a Republican representative from Georgia, has said, We need to be the party of nationalism. I am a Christian, and I say it proudly. We should be Christian nationalists. Admittedly, Greene often seems disconnected from reality, but she insists that the base of the Republican Party is composed of Christian nationalists. Tim Whitaker, who is the host of the podcast The New Evangelicals and was on this podcast recently, says the following, we need to understand that the world of Christian nationalism largely rejects pluralism, which the study shows. Most Christian nationalists, either adherents or sympathizers, either agree or strongly agree with the notion that they should live in a country full of other Christians. Whitaker believes that most Americans will reject such a view, but he admits that its proponents have a disproportionate influence in the Republican Party. Whitaker says that the reality is a lot of these folks, especially the adherents, are very militant in this belief that God has given them a mandate to rule over the nation. And so for them, I think that compromise is a sign of weakness and the GOP needs to understand what they're dealing with. Unfortunately, I think Whitaker is completely correct here. And it gets worse. According to the survey, those that see themselves as Christian nationalists say they're willing to do whatever is necessary to bring about their vision. The survey found that people who are Christian nationalists are much more likely to agree with the statement, true patriots might have to resort to violence to save our country. Robert P. Jones, the founder and director of PRRI, says his organization has been surveying religious views for many years, but only recently began to ask about Christian nationalism. In regard to the actual number of Christian nationalists and sympathizers, Jones says, Now, is that everyone? No, it's not everyone. But it's a sizable minority that is not only willing to declare themselves opposed to pluralism and democracy, but also willing to say, I'm willing to fight and either kill or harm my fellow Americans to keep it that way. For now, though, 
Those folks in Moscow are pursuing their struggle against the tyranny of American government by way of education. New St. Andrews College is designed to provide what its founders term a classical Christian education. You can be excused if you're not quite certain what that means, since I'm not quite sure that the college understands this either. They want to teach classical texts alongside Christian ones, though I'm not sure the extent to which they realize that these things, classical texts, aren't exactly in line with Christianity. Wilson says that the goal of the college is to save civilization, which is a rather mighty mission for such a small place. But I guess you have to start somewhere. The Vision for Education is a pamphlet published in 1643 by the Massachusetts Bay Colony to describe a college that had been recently founded in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Students are required to learn the classical languages of Latin and Greek, which is certainly a good basis for study of the classics. Of course, part of the curriculum is creation science, which is the attempt to take stories from the Bible and show how they are scientific. But the warlike stuff isn't that removed from the college, which has the really catchy motto of Nuncum bella peace, nuncum certanima desunt. For the faithful, wars shall never cease. Perhaps it's just a coincidence, but many of the good people of Moscow aren't all that keen on having the new St. Andrew's students in their town, so much so that the student directory doesn't reveal where students actually live. Wilson calls such people intoleristas, just as he calls those of us who aren't in favor of slavery close-minded. A former student named Laura Blakely claims that there are a bunch of people who hate NSA. She explains this by saying, I think our Christianity offends them. Perhaps it really is their Christianity that offends, but I'm more inclined to think that it's the anti-Christianity that's the real culprit. When conservative Christians, I think Wilson would count as an evangelical, but perhaps he doesn't like that term, when they go to found a college or other place of learning, they often end up sounding as pretentious as possible. Many of the examples I'll be mentioning come from an article titled Onward Christian Scholars by Molly Worthen. New St. Andrews likes to think of itself as the Idaho outpost of Oxbridge. Students wear gowns for exams and thesis defenses. The people who teach there are called fellows. A few of their professors actually have doctorates, so it's slightly academically serious. As usual with evangelicals, the heroes are C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton, both of whom I consider to be extremely overrated, but that's the subject for another episode. I've mentioned before that Christian nationalists are post-millennialists. Still, it's odd to read an alumnus of the school, his name is Matthew McCabe, say that he is, quote, critical of evangelical anti-intellectualism, the attitude that it's not important to learn because we'll all be raptured soon. Perhaps the rapture part is some teeny-weeny part of evangelical anti-intellectualism, but the really important parts are, one, that only the Bible really matters, and two, that studying secular authors might undermine one's faith. According to reports of students, professors routinely have reading assignments of over 1,000 pages per week. Perhaps that's designed to make them think that they're really learning. But as someone who has been a philosophy professor for over two decades, I find any such assignment ludicrous, as if one really could read a thousand pages per week of challenging academic material. 
Just as an aside, I used to tell students that when they were reading Kant, three to five pages per hour was a pretty good goal. But perhaps their assignments are much less challenging. Doug Wilson has a brother named Evan, from whom he is estranged, but he lives in the same town. Evan Wilson's take on students at New St. Andrews is that they are incapable of critical thinking and thus unable to question the assumptions that undergird their institution. But I'm not sure that the college really wants critical thinkers. Instead, I think it wants to give the impression of critical thinking without actually getting students to think too much about some of the basic premises which undergird their beliefs. Further, it's hard to create an environment for critical thinking when the so-called faculty consists of Doug Wilson, one of Wilson's sons, his son-in-law, and his youngest brother. That's a lot of Wilsons on faculty. It also doesn't help critical thinking when students are forbidden to hold such errors as Arianism and feminism. Students who are flirting with such falsehoods are instructed by the administration to let the administration know so they can withdraw from school. One of my former colleagues, Daryl Hart, makes a critique that the students at a place like New St. Andrews can read texts representing different viewpoints without delving into them in a serious way. Here's how Daryl puts this. You can write them off as right or wrong without having to deal with their arguments, which he thinks is simply a form of anti-intellectualism. I think that's completely correct. While the students at the college are really into smoking pipes and wearing their gowns, it's not at all clear that they're interacting very deeply with those 1,000 pages. Earlier, I quoted a former student who complained about the anti-intellectualism of the evangelical tradition. Yet that same student considers Darwin to be nothing more than a, and now I'm quoting, curious event in the history of modern secularism. If that's not an anti-intellectual view, I don't know what is. Students should feel free to criticize an author, but writing someone off as important as Darwin is a mere curiosity is simply not the kind of thing that real intellectuals do. Well, that's all for today's episode. If you liked what you heard, consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or through PayPal or the PayPal app. Uh, the username for both is our email address, onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Or just follow us. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.